Hello, welcome to the Campus Bible Study Podcast. Join us each week as we hear from God's Word, as we seek to prayerfully proclaim the crucified Christ as Lord of all. One Corinthians eleven. Be imitators of me, as I am of Christ. Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions, even as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is a husband, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head, because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman. All things are from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him, but if a woman has long hair, it is her glory? For her hair is given to her for a covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For, in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat, for in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What, do you, have, do you not have houses that are to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself, then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined, so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. 
If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. Hi there, and welcome to the Bible Talks. Nice to see you. And just so you're on board, um, we're, the points in this talk have different lengths. Point two is half the length of point one. Point three is half the length of point two. You can do the maths. Uh, it's the law of diminishing returns or something like that. So um, we need to pray for God's help to understand this passage. If I can get this microphone worked out. Let's pray and then uh, let's dig in together. Please pray with me. Our Father God, thank you so much for the opportunity to be here and to listen to your word. And we recognise that this passage is a really challenging passage that says some really stark things. Please help us to understand what you are saying to us so that we might be able to live by your word. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I'd like to extend a particularly warm welcome to you if you are not a believer in Jesus and you're here with us today. It is so good to have you here. The Bible talks are not just for people who believe in Jesus. Because the Bible is an interesting book and God has a lot to say to all people everywhere, we are really glad that people who aren't yet followers of Jesus or won't become followers of Jesus are willing to come and listen to the Bible with us. However, you have lucked into a particularly challenging Bible passage today. So I want to start this talk by looking from your perspective at the change that God makes in the life of a person when they are saved by Jesus. When God saves someone by, you know, changing their life, forgiving them, bringing them to follow Jesus, would you expect that a change like that would make many differences in the way that they then lived? I suspect that you would agree that a life change that big must have all kinds of differences in things like ethical positions, behaviour, values, attitude and all kinds of other things as well. And I suspect that you might like some of the differences, some of the changes. I suspect they might, they might fit with you. Um, if you have a Christian friend, I hope that their faith in Jesus means that they have some character traits that you really like. I hope they're kind and loving and forgiving and patient and trustworthy and honest and willing to say sorry when they let you down, that kind of thing. I suspect that you probably like those kinds of differences that Jesus can make in somebody's life. But there may be other differences that you don't like so much. Uh, as the general community gets further away from God, some of the things that God wants from his people look increasingly out of step with major majority kind of community values. For example, you might find it hard that your Christian friend still believes that marriage should be between a man and a woman. And I'm sure there are other differences like that that Jesus makes in their life. Now, the passage that we've just read probably speaks about some of those differences. You might not love what we've just read about God's desire for men and women relating in his church. This is a challenging passage and it is going to sound seriously at odds with a lot of our modern community values. But I hope that you will see that Christians take God's word seriously, even when it presents confronting ideas that seem out of step with our modern community. I hope you will see that we don't just pick and choose which bits of God's word we will accept and which bits of God's word we won't accept. And I hope you'll see that we approach this text with intellectual integrity 
seeking to truly understand what it is saying and then seeking to truly apply God's word to our lives authentically. In order to give this passage the intellectual integrity that it deserves, we may need to temper some of our initial reactions and not take offence too quickly. I'm going to try and teach this passage as clearly and helpfully as I can, and I hope that we can all come to an understanding of the logic of this passage and give it a fair hearing because it is God's word to us. So at point one, heads and heads. In both halves of our passage today, the author of this letter, the Apostle Paul, uses a word play on the key word of each section to bring out a number of meanings of the word, to use the word in a number of different ways. In the first half of the passage, the word head is used to describe literally the thing that sits on your shoulders, and also the same word head is also used to mean the leader in a relationship. Um, we can have a look at it in verses 2 and 3. Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ and the head of a wife is her husband and the head of Christ is God. Now verse 3 is clearly using the word head to describe, well, it's, it's the leadership type word, isn't it? The headship type word. And it almost seems like these verses are setting up a kind of leadership hierarchy where God is the head of a number of other heads. But there's something weird about the hierarchy. Did you notice it as we read verse 3? It seems like the steps are out of order. Did you see that? Don't you expect a descending or an ascending staircase? But it almost seems like Paul has deliberately not put this hierarchy in ascending or descending order. Can you think of any reason why the Apostle Paul might build the staircase out of order? Here's the first chance to have a little chat with the person next to you. I'd love you to have a bit more of a think about it. There is a question, why not a natural staircase hierarchy here? Why might he change that? Why might he do it differently? 30 seconds with the person next to you, see what they think, go for it. Okay, let's have a think about this together. Got your thinking? You have to, you have, to have your thinking cap on. Now, we, we can't know exactly what was in Paul's mind when he wrote it, but we can think about the effect of what he wrote. If he had built a normal staircase hierarchy, the emphasis would tend to fall on both the top step and the bottom step, I think. But in moving the order around, the emphasis falls slightly differently, doesn't it? The central relationship focus becomes the one between men and women in the middle. And that's what this whole passage is focusing upon. And on either side of this central relationship, we find a relationship with Jesus in it. What's even more interesting is that on one side, Jesus is the head of the relationship. And on the other side, Jesus submits to someone else who is the head of the relationship. So I think the Apostle Paul has given us this pattern of relationship between men and women with Christ on either side as the example of both headship and submission. This is very helpful for us because anything we might think about headship or submission can be run through the Jesus test, can't it? 
See, sometimes people say that the word head in, these, um, in, these, in this passage doesn't mean leader. It rather means <coughs> something like source, like the head of a river is the source of the river. Sometimes people say that. Um, when we run that through the Jesus test, it can't work. To believe that the Father is the source of the Son is to get yourself into all kinds of heresy. Real problems. See, God has eternally been, triune, Father, Son and Spirit, eternally. One God in three persons, one of those members of the Trinity wasn't the source of the other two. It doesn't work. Other people say that male headship in relationships makes women inferior or less valuable or second-class citizens. Does Jesus' submission to his Father make Jesus inferior, less valuable or second-class? Definitely not. It is very helpful that the Apostle Paul has given us the Lord Jesus as the perfect example of both headship and submission. And you know that submission gets a bad rap in our community. But what you might not realise is that we all actually submit to appropriate leadership much more than we realise. So you did it just a few minutes ago. On your way in, the lovely ushers probably told you to sit in a particular part of the lecture theatre. And do you know what you did? You submitted to their leadership. You do it much more than you realise. And, um, you know, that doesn't make you inferior or less valuable or second class in any way that you submitted to the usher's leadership. It actually just makes you smart because submitting to appropriate leadership makes all kinds of situations work better. Now, there's one more word in verse 3 that we need to understand. In the original Greek in which Paul wrote, the word for man is exactly the same word as the word for husband, okay? In the original Greek, there's not a different word for man and husband. Same word, man, same word, husband. And it's the same for woman and wife, actually. It's the same word again. So every time translators of the Bible come across that word, they need to work out from the context whether man or husband is the correct translation. And I don't like to say this, but I think the ESV translators might have made the wrong move in verse 3 because they've changed from one definition to the other unnecessarily. And it's highly unlikely that the Apostle Paul was thinking of two different definitions in this clear statement. See, um, the translators have moved from man to husband in the middle relationship because they want to make it very clear that every man is not the head of every woman. It is only in appropriate relationships like marriage and church leadership relationships where this principle of headship is lived out. They have tried to make that clear by making the change, but I'm not sure that that has helped us. Verse 3 is giving us the important principle for the whole passage that will then be applied throughout the passage to relationships of marriage and in church. But I think the principle would have been better left as man and woman before later in the passage being applied to various husbands and wives. Okay? So let's have a look at how the principle is applied. Verses 4 and 5. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonours his head. But every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonours her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. Okay, let's uh, break it there. Now, the first thing we need to clarify 
and there's a lot of that in this passage, is what it means to prophesy. Now, we could spend the whole rest of this talk with me explaining what it means to prophesy. So I'm going to have to give you a really rough and ready definition that we can just work with so we work through the rest of this passage. Okay? Um, Here is my rough and ready definition that will serve us today. Prophecy is communication about revelation. Prophecy is communication about revelation. Old Testament prophecy was communication about revelation. Old Testament prophecy was a bit more direct and authoritative. But since we now have God's complete revelation in the Old and New Testament in front of us, prophecy today is a bit less direct and authoritative because we have the authority of scriptures. However, prophecy still happens. And I think it still happens pretty much every week in your church. Do you? See, an example of prophecy, communication about revelation happening, might be a woman in your church who gives a book review to the church and speaks about what God has taught her through the book. Another example might be a missionary speaking about things God has taught them in their missionary work. And you know, preaching also is a type of prophecy, communication about revelation, but it comes with a little bit more authority because it is a more direct teaching from the scriptures to the whole congregation. So our rough and ready definition of prophecy is communication about revelation. And both men and women can give various forms of prophecy in church and lead in prayer. But Paul speaks about head coverings being significant. Now, as we get to head coverings in church, we move into territory where we don't have a lot of information. Even what it was that was actually covering the head we can't be sure about. Was it a veil? Was it a hat? Was it a particular hairstyle? The passage does not give us enough details to know clearly. So it is best for us not to get bogged down in the literal details of the head covering, but we do need to have a look at the principle behind it. The head covering for a woman seems to symbolise her willingness to to accept the leadership uh, relationship that she's in and perhaps particularly the leadership of her husband, if she's a married woman. Now, historical evidence from the first century tells us that, um, well, married women perhaps wore headscarves as symbols of being a married woman. So we are most likely talking about a symbolic item of clothing that symbolised a woman's married status. Now, I think we still have some items of clothing that, uh, that uh, symbolise status. I, was, I put my mind to it and I worked out where I saw it. Um, every year, I help the university run an Anzac Day dawn service. And in the lead up to that event, I meet with a lot of army guys um, who are going to be involved in the dawn service. And I always ask them, so what's your job in the army? You know, what, what's your role? And they usually end up pointing to something on their uniform and saying, I'm this rank and I do this and you can tell by what I'm wearing. And it's, it's really quite helpful. Now, I don't know my military ranks very well, and to be honest, I can hardly explain the difference between a sergeant major and a B-flat major. I really don't have much going on there. But here is my little hack for determining status in the army. You can use this one. The more bling on the uniform, the more serious the rank, okay? More bling on the uniform, the more serious the rank. So in some areas of modern life, we still have symbolic clothing that communicates 
kind of status or relationship. And I'm sure if you're in the army, you know exactly what each uniform signifies and you know who leads and who submits by who's wearing what. That's what we're talking about. Paul's point in these verses is about communicating your willingness to accept God's created order for relationships. And so if a first century man was to turn up at church with his wife's veil on, it would communicate him not wanting to take his God-given responsibility to lead in the relationship. And it would be dishonourable to him. If a first century woman was to lead in prayer or prophecy without this symbolic clothing, it would communicate not wanting to accept her God-given role and would be equally dishonourable. In fact, the very next verse says it would be like shaving her head completely, which in that culture, I'm told, was more symbolic of prostitution. It's all about symbolic clothing that represents your role in the relationship. But interestingly, in verses 4 and 5, it's not entirely clear which form of head is on view. Which head is dishonoured? The thing sitting on your shoulders or the person who might lead you in that particular relationship? I actually think it's possible that both might be on view, but either way, I think you can agree that it's not a good thing. Now, as we move into verses 7 to 9, we start to get the background reasoning as to why this order even exists between men and women. So let's pick it up in verses 7 to 9. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man was not made for woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. Let's uh, leave it there for the moment. Okay, the logic behind the order of relationships that we're talking about goes way back to the creation of humanity. Both male and female were made in the image of God. But Paul says something about glory that is a little bit different. And it's the order of creation that shapes Paul's logic. In God's creation of humanity, God chose to create the man first. You can read about it in Genesis 1 and 2. And then the woman later was made out of the bone of the man and the Genesis narrative tells us that the woman was made for the man. Now, being made for the man does not imply that she is his plaything or his slave or anything ridiculous like that. She was created for the man to work beside him, to help him in fulfilling his God-given mission in the world. And if anyone is tempted to, after that logic to feel superior or inferior, the Apostle Paul reminds us very quickly that both sexes need each other. Look at verses 11 and 12. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. Neither sex can fulfill God's plans and purposes on their own. And that is God's good gift to us because we're going to have to work together. That's good for us. Now, we skipped over a verse that I don't think you're going to let me escape from, and that's verse 10, because it's, it's, it's a cracker. 
So let's have a quick look at it and I'm going to give you a very short summary of what I think verse 10 is on about. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Great. Now, we're back to head coverings symbolising the role of the woman within the relationship. What are the angels doing? Well, I think the angels reference just pushes out the magnitude of the order in creation even further. The order that God has built into his creation involves even the angels. And you might be surprised where they fit in the order. And, um, well, they don't rank above you. They serve you. You can check it out in 1 Corinthians 6 verse 3 to enjoy that surprise in your own time. The last few verses of this section tell us that these differences that we've been talking about have even been built into the natural order of our world. So let's have a look at verses 13 to 16. Judge for yourselves, is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him, but if a woman has long hair, it is her glory? For, hair, for her hair is given to her for a covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice nor do the churches of God. Now, these little verses are saying that um, by nature, women tend to have more glorious hair and often longer hair than men. And perhaps by nature, men tend to lose a little bit more of theirs. I can personally testify that my head seems to, by nature, be more uncovered every year. I can testify happily to that. All right, so we've rushed through and there are all kinds of things that I would love to have more time to talk to you about, but I'm finishing by 5.2, so we've got to keep ploughing through. I want to think about how this applies to us in 2023. Um, the first thing to remember is that this issue is not just a cultural issue. Yes, the symbolic clothing is cultural, but the heart of the issue goes back way beyond culture to God himself, his very nature, and to the way he has created men and women. So we shouldn't just brush this issue off as though it is just a cultural anomaly. But at the same time, we no longer have a piece of clothing that demonstrates that a woman is happily married and happily accepts the leadership of her husband. Now this week, as I've been thinking through this passage, and you know, it's a pretty scary passage, so I looked for all the help I could get. I, I knew there was a great book and I really enjoyed reading again um, by a Sydney woman named Claire Smith. And I highly recommend this book if you would like to look into these issues further. It's an excellent book. But before I tell you how Claire thinks we might apply the principles of this passage today, I thought you might like to stop and have a think with the person next to you. So here is the question I thought you'd like to think about. What are the cultural symbols that demonstrate marriage in our culture? With the person next to you, just for 30 seconds. See if you can come up with any. Go for it. Okay, let's, uh, let's try and work this out together. Claire, in her book, suggests some really helpful things. Firstly, she suggests that the bridal veil is actually a bit of a leftover of this tradition. I think that is probably correct. The problem with the bridal veil is that you only wear it for, well, an hour, uh, maybe, maybe a day if you're lucky. Uh, so it's not an ongoing symbol. Perhaps the closest we have in our culture, you might have thought about it, is the wedding ring. Maybe that's 
the closest we have. Although Claire also speaks about a woman taking the surname of her husband being something that reflects the attitude of these verses. That is probably the closest way to symbolise what this passage is speaking about. Now, you might know that some very traditional churches still kind of require women to wear hats or veils to church. But the problem is the effect is very minimal according to actually fulfilling this passage because hats and veils no longer carry the symbolism that is intended. So they don't do the thing that this passage was aiming to do. They can't do it anymore. Now, a few quick points on applying the principle more broadly. Your attitude on this one is even more important than the symbolism. And so the question is, do you want to live out God's pattern for men and women in the way that you serve at church and if God blesses you with one within a marriage? That's the question. Do you want to live out God's pattern for men and women? Men, your role is to serve by leading in church and in marriage. And if you don't step up and fulfil that responsibility, you need to know that you are making life a lot harder for the women around you. Women, if you want to lead well, if you want, sorry, if you want men to lead well, to stop being man babies, which none of you want, and to step up and take responsibility, then perhaps it's going to mean not stepping in and taking the reins whenever the men in your life aren't doing it. Because lazy men will probably just be happy to let you keep doing everything. And that is not good for either sex. One of the principles that underpins this logic is that leadership is about service. Now, I was speaking to one of our students at Uni Church on Sunday night, and he is from the Solomon Islands. So on Monday, I googled the Solomon Islands to find out a bit more about the country, and I found that they have the best coat of arms ever. Here it is on the screen. Now, you have to love a coat of arms with a shark and a crocodile, don't you? That is just fantastic. But it's not even the shark and the croc that, uh, that win it for me. It's their motto. This is the country's motto. To lead is to serve. How good is that? I think it reflects a little bit of Christian background in this country. To lead is to serve. That is beautiful. The good people of the Solomon Islands have that exactly right. Leadership is not about power. It's about service. Make sure you get that right. Now, I know I haven't answered every question that you have about that section, but I'm briefly going to cover the second half of the chapter two. Who planned this? Who planned this whole chapter in one sitting? Well, we just got to go with it. We're at point two, bodies and bodies. In the second half of the chapter, the word play is on the word body. And the two meanings which will come out are the body of Christ as the literal flesh and blood of Jesus and the body of Christ being the church community of which he is the head. Got it? And in the Corinthian body, as we have seen, there are some serious issues, serious divisions, serious ungodliness, and some in the body are not treating others in the body as they should. Now, Paul focuses in on the church family gathering for a meal. And this meal is often called the Lord's Supper. But I, I imagine back in the first century, and it's even better today when you do it like this, it wasn't just a little symbolic piece of meal. You probably had a lot more of the meal and shared a, 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 probably a more serious meal together. Now, um, 
This meal is called the Lord's Supper, uh, and it's still practiced in most churches today. However, the meal in Corinth isn't demonstrating, isn't symbolizing what Jesus wants to symbolize and demonstrate in the Lord's Supper. Let's pick it up at verse 20 to 22. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in, or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. It seems as though some of the Corinthians were dishonouring their Lord by dishonouring some of the most vulnerable of his people who they perhaps deemed inferior to themselves. Some of the perhaps um, more entitled members of the church were pigging out and getting drunk at the meal, while other more marginalised people were sitting on the sidelines and got nothing. And look at how Paul responds to the problem in verses 23 to 26. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Now, it's really great that the Apostle Paul is reiterating the Lord's Supper tradition that was received from Jesus on the night before his death. It's really nice that he's reiterating the tradition and he's clearly doing that to some extent. What I want to know though is why? Why is he reiterating the tradition to address the problem in Corinth? And you know when I want to know something, the best way for me to find it out is to ask you to think about it. Of course I do that. There's the question on the screen. Uh, How does reiterating the tradition address the problem in Corinth? This is going to get you thinking. 30 seconds, go for it. Okay, how is Paul tackling the problem by reiterating the tradition? How is it happening? Well, I think some of you got it. I heard some good stuff down the front. Very good. Paul is reminding the Corinthians what this symbolic meal is all about. And I think the key statement is, do this in remembrance of me. And let's put it this way, you are not remembering Jesus very well if you are selfishly hogging all of the food and drink to yourself and failing to serve others. The Lord's Supper is all about sacrifice for the sake of others. You can't reenact this meal without sharing that attitude of sacrifice for the sake of serving others. The identity of the meal cannot be separated from the way that it is carried out. The meal is all about proclaiming the selfless sacrifice of Jesus. You can't eat and drink selfishly and expect to proclaim the selfless sacrifice of Jesus. In fact, the Apostle Paul says, when you are doing that, you are just eating and drinking judgment upon yourself. Verses 27 to 32. Now, 27, there it is. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. 
That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. Again, just like the rest of this passage, there is so much that I want to explain in these verses and so little time to do it. But let's just say that there were clearly people in the Corinthian church who weren't living like they'd been saved by Jesus. And particularly, this was being shown in the way they were hogging the Lord's Supper. Paul says condemnation is coming, and it seems as though God's judgment has already started to fall on them in smaller ways, in sickness, weakness, and perhaps even death. But look at the kindness of God in these verses. If they examine their own behaviour, they can avoid the condemnation of God. If they judge themselves, they can avoid the judgment of God, presumably by seeking forgiveness from the Lord Jesus and repenting and truly trusting him and living accordingly. And so that gets us to point three, reflecting God's character. I hope you have seen today that the same principles of Christian love and service are on view in both halves of our passage. In the first half of our passage, it is about reflecting the loving character and servant leadership of our God by willingly accepting the gender roles that he has created us for. In the second half of the passage, it is about reflecting the love and sacrificial leadership of Jesus in the way that we love and serve each other in church and particularly in the Lord's Supper. Now, our culture will probably laugh at the way Christians are willing to humbly submit to appropriate leadership and how Christians are willing to accept these gender-based roles in marriage and in church. But letting God's order shape our relationships and seeking to serve others rather than self, these are beautiful principles. These are beautiful principles that build the kind of loving, sacrificial community that actually so many people in our community want to live in. So I want to encourage you not just to be driven by your culture, which has turned away from God, but be driven by your true status as someone saved by the Lord Jesus Christ, to humbly follow his example, to reflect his character, to love and serve other people in your God-given relationships. Sometimes that will be in loving leadership, and at other times, it will be through generous submission. If you are a Christian, you bear the name of Jesus. Your actions and your attitudes represent him and will bring either honour or dishonour to him. So I want to encourage you to live in ways that bring honour to your king. Let's pray. Father, thanks for helping us with this really challenging passage and we pray that you'll continue helping us as we uh, keep looking at it and, and, and coming to grips with other things that we haven't had time to talk about today. But we thank you, Father, that you have created us as men and women and it's okay to be different. But we pray, Lord, that in our differences you'll help us to love and serve each other so that we can work together for your glory.
And Father, we pray that we'll be people who don't just live for ourselves, but actually who care about other people and are willing to sacrificially care about other people. Father, please keep growing us to reflect your character so that we might give honour to you as you deserve. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for tuning in this week to the Campus Bible Study Podcast. Make sure that you're subscribed on your regular podcasting app. And why don't you check us out on Facebook, YouTube, or visit our website at campusbiblestudy.org.